0: Okay, praises to our loving father that we're able to again study his words and his commands. And so today we're going to talk about why the Jewish people, or Israel today, reject Yahusha as the Messiah. This is going to be a two-part series, so we'll do the first part today and the second part uh, next week. And so basically, if you go to Israel today, we know about Israel because Israel is basically the nation of God written about in the book of the Old Testament. Um, But Israel today um, they still await the return of Messiah, Uh, they don't believe that Messiah has already come, we on the other hand we believe Yahusha is the Messiah, and the reason why we believe Yahusha is the Messiah, is because he was able to fulfill all of the many prophecies that were found in the Old Testament take note the Old Testament is believed by the Israelites or by the Jewish people today. And so if the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled by Yehusha, then isn't it obvious that Israel should accept Yehusha as the Messiah? And so this is a big conundrum. Why do the Jews continuously reject Yehusha to be the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies so that he can be accepted by uh, Judaism today as the Messiah. In other words, we ask the question why do the Jews reject Yahusha as the Messiah? So to answer uh, the question, we need to go to a rabbi. And we have here a website. It's called Or Somayak, which is a website where, where you can learn all about Judaism. And they have a section in this website called Ask the Rabbi. And so we ask the rabbi why Jews don't believe in Jesus. And so the rabbi gave us four different um, answers uh, to why they reject Jesus or they reject Yahusha as the Messiah. Uh, the first objection concerns scriptural references, which they believe were mistranslated. Number two, they question the genealogy of our King Yahusha. Number three, they question some of the messianic prophecies that were not fulfilled when Yahusha Uh, was born a virgin and claimed to be the Messiah when he preached during the first century. And number four, they also object because of Messiah's qualifications. In other words, when they look at Yahushua, who he is, what he did, they claim that he has not satisfied the requirement to become a Messiah or a Mashiach. So we have four different objections that we're going to be looking into We'll begin today by looking at number one and number two. So let's begin with number one, scriptural references concerning the Messiah. This is what he has to say. In order to understand anything in the Torah, one must look at the original Hebrew. You will see that the Christians distorted, changed, and misinterpreted many of the Hebrew words in order to fit things into their beliefs. The two places that you mentioned are good examples in Psalm 217. The Hebrew states, hikifuni ka'ari yadai which means they bound me like a lion, my hands and my feet. The Christians uh, translate this as they pierced my hands and feet. Nowhere in the entire Torah, prophets, and writings do the words ka'ari or hikifuni mean anything remotely resembling pierce. And so the first objection that they present concerns a mistranslation, according to them, of certain Hebrew words, which center around Psalm 22, verse 17. We know Psalm 22, verse 17. Well, and this is what we read in the New King James translation. Psalm 22, 16, for dogs have surrounded me, congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. And so this is obviously a reference to the Crucifixion, the piercing of the hands and the feet, which we know was fulfilled in Yahusha as the Mashiach. And so they object to Psalms twenty-two sixteen, 16, claiming it is a mistranslation. The way they uh, say it's a mistranslation is they say the Hebrew word that is translated "pierce" should not be translated "pierce," but it should be like a lion. And when, in fact, we look at the Hebrew manuscripts, because after all, our English Bibles or Tagalog Bibles or whatever translation Bible we have, it is translated from ancient Hebrew manuscripts. We don't have the original Hebrew manuscripts. What we have are copies of copies of copies, right? And so what we do to be able to get the best, translation, the most accurate one is by comparing different manuscripts. It turns out when you look at Psalms 22 verse 16, there are textual variances. In other words, there are some Hebrew scriptures that translate like a lion instead of the ears. So they do present a pretty good uh, uh, object. They do present a pretty good argument that when you read Psalms 22:16, 16, it should read like a lion instead of they pierce because some Hebrew manuscripts actually say like a lion and not they pierced. So we have textual variants. Some Hebrew manuscripts indicate like a lion, but some Hebrew manuscripts also say pierced, And so we need to be able to understand which one is the more accurate one. What are these textual variants? Well, one textual variant says this. This is a Hebrew word. The other textual variant says this. The one at the top is Kaaru. The one at the bottom is Kaari. And so they look alike and kind of sound alike. Kaaru, Kaari. When it says Kaaru, it means they pierce. That's the translation in English. If it's Ka'ari, it is better translated like a lion. And so you have two textual variants. One is Ka'aru, one is Ka'ari. I want you to focus on the Hebrew. What is the only difference between the two variants? If you notice, it's the last letter, the one at the top, Ka'aru, it ends with the U, right? The U is the vowel or the wow. That's that gives you the u sound, kaaru, like in yahoo, wa, right? And at the bottom, kaari, it ends with the I sound, the yod, kaari. And so you have kaaru and kaari. And so if the Hebrew manuscript indicates kaaru, if it has the u at the end, then it's kaaru, which is better translated, they hear On the other hand, if in the Hebrew manuscript, you have at the end of that word, the letter Yod, it is better translated like a lion. So you have two choices. And when you look at these two letters, it's easy to see how one could kind of maybe embellish the ancient documents because the only difference between the first one and the last one is just a continuation of that that vertical line, right? And so it's easy to kind of miscopy that. And so we are left with a choice which is more reliable, right? And so which one? Well, it turns out there's a pattern to be seen because the Hebrew manuscripts that translate like a lion, it's predominantly dated to the third and fourth centuries AD, long after the resurrection of king Yehusha. However, According to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is before a, uh, the birth of our And so it's dated to around 600 BC or so. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the more ancient manuscripts, it indicates peers. And so if you were a logical and reasonable person, and you look at these scripts, and you notice that in the third and fourth century, That's the time when you find these manuscripts appearing that says, like a lion, you begin to ask yourself, which one is more ancient? Because the more ancient these scripts are, it's likely it's more closer to the original. And so the ancient manuscripts, which was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, indicate not like a lion, but fierce. And so we believe the correct translation is, they pierce his hands and his feet referring to the crucifixion. However, um, for the sake of conversation, just for the sake of conversation, what if, for example, the original does translate to like a lion? Let's pretend that's true, although I don't believe that's actually the case, but let's go ahead and pretend That the Hebrew manuscripts, the original Hebrew manuscripts, does translate to like a lion. Does it change the meaning of Psalms 22, verse 16? I don't think so. Because if, if we go back and take a look at Psalms 22, verse 16, there's the English on the left, the Hebrew on the right. You have translated in English, have enclosed me, they pierce my hands and my feet, right? And so let's pretend that the ancient Hebrew manuscripts suggest that the translation should be like a lion. Now, if that is the case, and we read this passage, then what we have is have enclosed me like a lion, my hands and my feet. Now, what does that mean? How can we make sense of this statement? Let's go ahead and take a look at the phrase having closed me which is the Hebrew word 5362 which means to destroy, to strike, to strike off skin, to strike with more or less violence. And so when we look at the passage in question, Psalms twenty two sixteen, 16, if we were to remove the, the word pierce and substitute the phrase like a lion, doesn't it tell us that like a lion, Uh, A person's hands and feet have been stricken or destroyed. I mean, when a lion destroys your hands and feet, doesn't that describe what happened to our king, Yahusha? And so in a way, it still communicates crucifixion. So whether you see it from the vantage point of like a lion or from they pierce, it still points to the the piercing or to the destroying of one's hands and feet, suggesting a crucifixion. However, for us to be able to appreciate the meaning of Psalms 22, verse 16, I think it's good that you don't take just one part of the verse or just one verse out of the whole chapter, you have to look at it in context. So let's go ahead. take a look at the context of psalms 22 verse 1 and see what we get in psalms 22 verse 1 it says my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning this is the beginning of psalm 22 22 1 and the practice of rabbis of hebrew teachers of the past when they reference a passage they often cite the beginning of the passage because back then they had no numbering system like what we do now. Today we have Psalms 22 verse 1. Back then there was no numbering system. And so the way the rabbis would reference a passage is by quoting the first line of that passage. And so Yahushua, when he was on the cross dying, he, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he is speaking to his audience. He is letting us know that Psalm 22 is being fulfilled when he was on the cross. And when we keep reading, this is what we uncover, but I am a worm and no man reproach of men and despised by the people. The word worm is the Hebrew that is for crimson. When we talked about the crimson worm and how it indicates suffering and being crushed for the salvation of many for the birth of new children of God. And so we know something terrible is going to happen to the Messiah. He is going to be crushed. And because he's gonna be crushed, that will result in the salvation of many people. We keep going in verses 14 to 15. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like pots, like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death." And so Yahushua, before he was led to the cross, he was crushed, he was beaten, he was scourged, he endured so much, and when he was hung on the cross, his bones were out of joint. And we can see how this can happen because if you are suspended, your arms are suspended on the cross, it can cause all of your joints to be removed out of, uh, cause your bones to come out of joint. And so we know because of the loss of blood, our King Yehusha was suffering from dehydration. And the result of dehydration is his strength is dried up. The tongue clings to his jaws. And so this is a picture of the suffering of our King Yahushua as he was on the cross and so this is in line with the context of the crucifixion and if we keep reading further 16-18, for dogs have surrounded me the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me they pierced my hands and my feet I count all my bones they look and stare at me they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast Lots. So when we look at the context of Psalm 22, it depicts a crucifixion, and so we believe the appropriate word is not likened to lions, but pierced. He was pierced in his hands, and in his feet. And if one would insist it is like a lion, then either way, his hands are and feet are still going to be mauled, like being mauled by a Lion. So it still points to the crucifixion. And what further proves that the Messiah is going to be crucified? Well, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, and the verses 10, and I will pour on the house of David, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Here we have a prophecy concerning our king, Yahushua. And the Bible says they will look on him whom they pierced. This time, let's take a look at the Hebrew word for pierce. It is dakar. And dakar means to pierce. Thrust through, piece through. And so if the rabbi cannot accept the word in Psalm 22, verse 16, this one in Zechariah, it points to pierce. It suggests a piercing. And so Yahusha was pierced. And while Yahushua hung on the cross, what was fulfilled? According to Apostle John, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, Not one of his bones shall be broken. That's another prophecy that was fulfilled. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. And so we find in Psalm 22, verse 16, and also in Zechariah 12, 10, corroborating verses that point to a Messiah who's going to be crucified. And so the Messiah is going to be killed, he's going to suffer. There's going to be a suffering Messiah. And so many of the Jewish people, including many scholars and rabbis of old, they were confounded by the Hebrew scriptures, which speak of a suffering Messiah, to the point they had to conceive of the Messiah as coming in two persons one who is Ben Joseph and one who is Ben David. So, two different Messiahs, because when you read scripture, there is a Messiah who's going to suffer. there's a Messiah who's going to rule as king. So one Ben-Joseph, the suffering Messiah, Ben-David, the kingly Messiah. But when we look at scripture, what it actually tells us is just one person. There's only one Messiah. And this Messiah is going to suffer. And after his suffering, he's going to return to be king of kings and lord of lords. And so there's no mistranslation of the uh, book of psalms 22 verse 16 now another point of reference that the rabbi has suggested as a mistranslation is isaiah 714 because when it comes to our belief concerning the messiah first of all he's crucified right he's going to suffer second of all he's going to be born of a virgin and so this famous passage about being born as a virgin they're also throwing uh, doubt about it. They're, they're, cult, they're, they're saying that we mistranslated Isaiah 714, according to his argument in, in Isaiah 714, the Hebrew states, hara ben. Behold, the young woman is pregnant and shall give birth to a son. The Christians translate this as behold, a virgin shall give birth. Give me two mistakes probably deliberate in the one verse they mistranslate ah as a instead of the they mistranslate alma as virgin when in fact the hebrew word for virgin is betula aside from the fact that if you read the context of that prediction you will clearly see uh, you will see clearly that it is predicting an event that was supposed to happen and be seen by king ahaz who lived 700 years before jesus so this is the argument um, that the rabbi presents. And again, he is making the claim that those who believe in Yahusha are making mistranslations of the Hebrew word found in the old Hebrew words found in the Old Testament, one of which is Isaiah 7.14. When we read Isaiah 7.14, it speaks about a virgin who will give birth. But they say, Rabbi says, if you look at the word virgin in Hebrew. It is the word Alma and not Betula. And so they say, instead of being a reference to a virgin birth, it is simply a young woman, Alma, who, gives, who gets pregnant and will give birth instead of a virgin giving birth, okay? So we have to now look at the difference between Alma and Betula. So they say that for Isaiah seven fourteen to be referring to a virgin, it has to be the word betula. And so, what is the word betula? Doesn't does it in fact mean virgin? Well, let's read from the Blue Letter Bible. There's the word betula, and in fact, it is without a doubt it means virgin. So we're not questioning the definition of betula meaning virgin. However, can we also look and test the word Alma. Can the word Alma also be used to refer to virgin, right? And so let's go ahead and take a look at Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so here in Isaiah 7.14, it mentions the virgin who shall conceive and bear a son. In the Hebrew, the word virgin, is it betula? It's alma, right? The Hebrew word 5959. Can the word alma refer to a virgin according to how it's used in other scriptural passages? Indeed, it can be. It can mean a young woman, which is suggested by uh, the, uh, the rabbi, or it can also refer to a Virgin, you're not mutually exclusive. And so the word Alma does not forbid the meaning to become virgin. So you can use Alma to refer to a virgin. What's the proof of this? Let's take a look at this passage in Genesis 24 42 to 44. And this day I came to the well and said, O Yahuwah, God of my master Abraham. If you will not prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass. But when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink, and she says to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also, let her be the woman whom Yahuwah has appointed for my master's son. Okay, so we have here in Genesis, the incident where Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, was instructed to look for a wife for Isaac. So Eliezer was sent to, um, up, up to a certain place and look. He, he was looking for a suitable person to be wed to Isaac. And if you're going to look for someone who's suitable, of course, you're going to be looking for a Virgin, right? This is why here it's translated a virgin, and so in the Hebrew, the word used is alma, and so alma could also refer to a virgin. This is why in Isaiah seven fourteen, when it speaks of a virgin becoming pregnant, giving birth to a son who would be called Emmanuel, even though the word is alma. It can still refer to virgin. Now, why do we believe that Alma in Isaiah seven fourteen take Isaiah seven fourteen is referring to not simply a young woman but also a virgin? Well, in about two hundred fifty B.C., the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures was translated by 70 Hebrew-Greek scholars from Hebrew to Greek. What do you call it, translation? Translation by the 70 scholars. What do you call the translation? It was translated 250 B.C. It's called the Septuagint, right? And so when the translators of the Septuagint read Isaiah 714, what Greek word did they use to translate Alma? Well, the 70 Jewish rabbis, who translated the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, in about 250 B.C., translated Alma to read Parthenos, which is the simple Greek word for virgin. This is why Isaiah 7.14, according to the Hebrew scholars in 250 B.C., can refer to a virgin. This is why Isaiah 7.14 can uh, is pointing to a virgin who's going to give birth, not simply a young woman. But a young woman who also happens to be a virgin. Now, why are we absolutely sure that the word Alma in Isaiah 714 refers to a virgin and not simply a young woman again, we have to look at the context right. You don't just single out a word, which is what this rabbi is doing, singling out a word and then making a conclusion. We have to look at the word, but we also need to look at the context of the passage. So let's go ahead and take a look at Isaiah 7, 10 down to 14. Later, Yehudah sent this message to King Ahaz, ask Yahuwah your God, for a sign of confirmation. He has make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead, you see, at this point, Ahaz, it was King Judah. He was going to be attacked by Syria and Israel. They were going to unite and try to destroy Judah. And so Isaiah gets a word from Yehuah. He gives it to Ahaz. Yahuwah says, to Ahaz, um, I'm going to protect you. You're not going to be destroyed. You're going to survive, right? But Ahaz, I maybe mean, was kind of lacking in faith. And so Yahuwah notices that, and Yahuwah, to kind of help him out, he says to Ahaz, go ahead, ask Yahuwah your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven, or as deep as the place of the dead. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, place yourself in the position of Ahaz. Here you are, troubled, because you're going to be attacked by confederate forces. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be destroyed. And then you get a message from Yahuwah who basically confirms and says to you, you're not going to be destroyed. Don't worry. I got this. In fact, to prove to you, you're going to not only survive, you're going to overcome the enemy. I'll give you a sign. The kind of sign that only I can perform. This is why what does Yahuwah say to Ahaz? Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. (laughs) I mean, what does Ahaz say? about this offer from yahuwah let's speak but the king refused the king refusing yahuwah why does he refuse no he said i will not test yahuwah like that And isaiah said listen well you royal family of david isn't it enough to exhaust human patience must you exhaust the patience of my god as well and so when ahaz refuses What Yahuwah was wanting to give him, a sign, like a miraculous sign, right? Yahuwah even says, make it as difficult as you want. But here is Ahaz, he says, no. And what was the reason for refusing what Yahuwah wanted to give? He said, I don't want to test Yahuwah like that. It sounds holy, doesn't it? it? Sounds pious for him to say, I don't want to test Yahuwah. But Isaiah says, no, you are driving the patience of God, Yahuwah himself gave you the instruction to give, to ask for a miraculous sign, and you refuse it, and so that's not good, it's not good to refuse what something wants to give, what something that Yahuwah already wants to give us, this is why when we, we read scriptures and we have all these promises that Yahuwah wants to give us, we can claim it through Yahushua, right, it's a good thing for us to receive the promises of Abba. In fact, if we refuse it, then by faith, it's like we're refusing Yahuwah Yehosh- himself. And so it's a good thing to ask for that sign. It's a good thing to receive the miracle that Yahuwah wants to give us. And so when Ahaz refuses the sign, what does Yahuwah do? Well, all right then, Yahuwah himself will give you the sign. You don't, want to give a, you don't want a sign of your choosing? I'll give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. she will give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so Yahuwah himself selects the sign. What kind of sign? Not just any sign, but a miraculous sign. Yahuwah was suggesting to Ahaz, "Why don't you make it difficult? Here's my question for you. If, in this passage, Isaiah 7:14, the virgin is simply a young woman, is that much of a sign, a young woman getting pregnant and giving birth is that a sign that's not a sign at all for this sign to be a sign there has to be a miracle what miracle is that a virgin giving birth to a son that's. The miracle, this is why I Isaiah 7:14, when you look at the context it doesn't make sense. If virgin only means young woman, but it makes perfect sense when it means virgin, because if it is a virgin giving birth, then that would be a miracle or a sign that Yahuwah is able to provide the people of Judah. Okay, make sense? All right, now let's go to the second part of his objections, which is the genealogy. This is what he says. He was not descended from the house of David, according to Jewish law. Tribal identification comes from the father's side, being Jewish, from the mother's side. According to Matthew 1, Joseph was descended from David, although there are many contradictions between his genealogy there and that listed in Luke. However, according to the same text, Joseph did not have sexual relations with Mary. Therefore, Jesus, was not related to Joseph, and not a descendant of King David, and so this is one of the most often used arguments for rejecting Yahushua as the Messiah, they look to the genealogy, because according to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, Yahushua, or the Messiah, is going to be the son of David, and also from the tribe of Judah, and so He must be a descendant of both Judah and David and Abraham and Adam, because he's going to be called son of Adam, right? Or I mean, what do you call it? Second Adam. So he's going to have to come from, was that again? David, Judah, uh, who else? Abraham, Adam, right? And so when you look at the genealogy the one in presented in Matthew one, the genealogy is whose genealogy? Joseph. But wait a minute, Joseph, well, he's not the physical descendant of Yahusha. Because as you say, according to the rabbi, Mary was a virgin. And so because the genealogy mentioned in scripture is the genealogy through the line of Joseph, It doesn't matter, it doesn't count because it's supposed to come from the line of Joseph but there's no physical connection between Joseph and Yahushua. And so how do we respond to this objection? Well, let's take a look at this genealogy in Luke and Matthew and compare it because he says there are contradictions, right? He says there's contradiction, between the genealogy of Matthew and Luke. And also um, there's also the fact that this is describing the genealogy of Joseph, which shouldn't count. So let's let's go ahead and take a look at Luke 3.23. Now, Yahushua himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Okay, so in the genealogy in Luke, Yahusha is introduced as being the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. But notice in parentheses, as was supposed, because Luke knows that there is no physical connection between Yahusha and Joseph. So this is how Luke begins the genealogy of our king, Yahusha. We go now to Matthew 1, verse 16. And this is how the genealogy um, begins in Matthew. And Jacob begot. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Yahushua, who is called Christ. Okay, and you spot a contradiction. Do you spot anything wrong with these two genealogies? In Luke, who is the father of Joseph? In Luke, Helly. In Matthew, who is the father? of Joseph? Jacob. And so Luke says, well, Joseph is the father, Joseph, the father of Joseph is Heli. And then in Matthew, the father of Joseph is Jacob. So which is which? Which is true? Is it Jacob? Is it Heli? Which is which? There's a contradiction here. Well, there is no contradiction. You see, what Luke did Is he's tracing the genealogy of Yahusha through Mary, not Joseph, because Heli is the father of Mary. And so when it says in Luke, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, instead of using Mary, they're they're using Joseph because... That is how it was done when it comes to genealogies, including women's names and genealogies was not a standard practice. And so when you find this seemingly contradictory passages in the genealogy, it's actually communicating to us that Luke is giving the genealogy of Yahusha through the line of Mary. That's why Heli is included. This is why there are two genealogies. Luke gives the genealogy through Mary, and they, uh, Matthew gives a genealogy through Joseph. Two different genealogies. And so what we're interested in, because what is at stake here is the physical descendants of our King Yehusha, right? What is at stake here is knowing how the genealogy of Mary connects Yahusha, if at all, to David and to Judah. So let's go ahead and take a look at the line of Mary, the son of Meliah, I'm not gonna read this whole thing, but you can notice the genealogy, it goes to the son of David, it connects him to the son of Judah, and then to the son of Abraham, then to the son of Adam, to the son of God. And so according to the genealogy of Luke, through Mary, Yahusha is a son of David, is of the tribe of Judah, he is the seed of Abraham, he is of Adam, and he's also the son of God. And so if we were to trace the physical descendants of our King Yahusha, then he is David's seed, Abraham's seed. He's also the, the seed of Adam. He is physically related by blood with David, Judah, Abraham, and Adam. You see that? Okay. So Yahushua, according to the genealogy through Mary, is qualified to be Messiah. This is why in the book of Luke 131-33, what was promised concerning Yahushua. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Yahushua. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And Yahuwah God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so according to holy scriptures, what would be given to Yahusha? The throne of David. What does that mean? He would be the Messiah. Because the Messiah will take on the throne of David. This is believed by the Jews. And so Yahushua, because he qualifies as a descendant of David, he can be the one who is to be the Messiah, who will sit on the throne of his father, David. This is why when we look at the genealogies found in Luke, it confirms that Yahushua can be a seed of David a son of David, and so be qualified as the Messiah. However, the rabbi knows about this genealogy, and so he has the following rebuttals. This is what he says. Three answers to this problem are given in classic Christian sources. So the rabbi is doing his homework, and he's telling us, okay, I know what the Christians are gonna say, and these are my rebuttals. The genealogy is that of Mary. This is what we presented, right? The genealogy is of Mary. This is inadequate since If he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, according to Jewish tradition, he must be descended of his father's side. Mary's genealogy is irrelevant. He was adopted by Joseph, according to Jewish law. Adoption does not change the status of the child. If an Israelite is adopted by a Kohen, a descendant of Aaron, the high priest, the child does not become a Kohen. Likewise, if a descendant of David adopts someone who is not, he does not become a tribe of Judah and a descendant of David. See, it doesn't matter. He was a spiritual inheritor of King David. If it doesn't matter, why do Christian scriptures spend time establishing his genealogical, genealogical pedigree? And if he is claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, then according to the Jewish tradition, it does matter. And so according to his rebuttal, first of all, he is arguing against the use of the genealogy of Mary. Because he says, according to Jewish tradition, right? Uh, he must be descendant of his father's son. Mary's genealogy is irrelevant. And so according to uh, the rabbi, you should only consider what is of Jewish tradition. Because if it's not of Jewish tradition, then it doesn't matter. And according to Jewish tradition, even if Joseph is the legal father because of adoption, it still doesn't qualify him to become a descendant of David because to be a descendant of David, you have to be, this, your, your lineage should connect to the father, to Joseph, not simply the mother. But that's not what the scripture says. In fact, what is more compelling and what is priority over Jewish tradition is the prophecy of Yahuwah. The reason why we can respond to this objection, that it is through the line of Mary that we need to be looking at when it comes to the genealogical pedigree of yahusha is because of the fulfillment of prophecy. What are we talking about? Take a look at Matthew 1, 20 to 23. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of Yahuwah appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And he and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Yahushua, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Yahuwah through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and their son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so what did the rabbi overlook, which is why he made the argument that the lineage of Yahusha should be traced not through Joseph, not through Mary, but through Joseph. The rabbi forgot about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is able to do. Yahuwah, according to his plan and prophecy, Right. What's going to happen so that Yahusha would be born? It would not be a normal birth. And so because it's not a normal birth, you should not be looking for a normal genealogy. You're going to be looking for a miraculous genealogy. What is that genealogy? Not through Joseph, but through Mary. Why? Because she's going to be a virgin, <laughs> a virgin birth. And so that points to the genealogy of Mary. This is why Isaiah 714 is so relevant and so important because Isaiah 7 verse 14 and its fulfillment in Matthew in the passage we just read is the fulfillment of Yahuwah's first Messianic prophecy in Genesis 3 verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know what we read to you there? That is perhaps the first Messianic prophecy. Maybe not the first because I believe Benesheet is also a prophecy about the coming Messiah. But Genesis 3.15 very explicitly tells us that there's going to be in the future the seed of the woman, right? And the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And so this would be the devil. And so the seed of the woman is important because in Genesis 3.15, instead of speaking to the serpent and saying the seed of the man is going to bruise your head. Yahuwah says the seed of a woman, which is very interesting. And it was a mystery. It's a mystery for, for even uh, Hebrew scholars. Why would it be a seed of a woman, not a seed of a man? Because the seed of the man is the usual way of tracing the genealogy. But in Genesis 3, verse 15, it doesn't say seed of the man. It says seed of the woman. Why? Because Messiah is going to be conceived and be given a birth to not using usual means, but miraculous means. This is why Isaiah 7.14, Genesis 3.15, and Matthew 1:20 20 to 23 are all connected to tell us that Yahushua's birth, Yahushua's genealogy is anything but normal. It is miraculous because it's from the hand of who? Yahuwah. This is why. The genealogy being traced through Mary is appropriate because of the miraculous virgin birth that was planned long ago and foretold in Genesis 3 and the verses 15. That's why it's a seed of the woman, because it tells us of the future virgin birth of the Messiah, so that he can be called Emmanuel, God who is with us. Okay. That is our lesson for today. Before we go ahead and part ways, let us offer a prayer of thanks. Almighty and merciful Father, thank you so much, gracious Abba, for the blessings that you have given us. Thank you for teaching us about the Messiah. We believe, Father, that you are a God of miracles. Nothing is impossible with you. And so when we are in need of something that is not capable of being done by human beings. We will turn to you. We will ask for your miracles. Father, please have mercy upon your people. Teach us to live by faith. Teach us, O Father, to rely on your strength that we can endure until the very end. Our King Yahushua, we implore you, be merciful upon your servants. You are the one they pierce. And you, because of your shed blood, have redeemed us from our sins. Please be with us at all times. Please heal us of our sicknesses. Make us whole once again and strengthen, please, our faith. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. For we ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.